Hey everybody, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today on the show... There might be giants, they might be giants, they might be bald, they might be snow, they might be something else in the snow. It was in 1982 that a couple of former high school buddies named John Flansburg and John Linnell got together to form one of the altest of alt-rock bands, They Might Be Giants, which means that they have now been together doing what they do for 30 years. What they do is barely hinted at in that term alternative rock. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a description that really gets at the essence of They Might Be Giants. Though, I do like this phrase from the Amazon reviewer who goes under the handle Anti-Philosopher. He called their first album Bouncy, Catchy, Upbeat Psychosis in Musical Form. That's pretty good. Anyway, the band is kicking off a new nationwide tour starting right here in Santa Cruz next week. They'll be performing at the Rio Theater on Friday, January 27th. And from what I've heard, the performances will include some recent material, but will also have kind of a retrospective flavor. So this seemed like a good time to look back on the career of They Might Be Giants. And John Flansburg, the more public half of the duo, was good enough to join me to talk about that and their very special approach to music making. And of course, we played a lot of songs, too. So stick around and listen. John, you are starting your your massive uh, nationwide tour in Santa Cruz? Yes, we are. And why is that? To be candid, we're doing two shows the next day in Los Angeles, and we didn't want to start a tour with a doubleheader. Right. There's just too much technical stuff that could go wrong, and it it would be an incredibly long day. I had a different idea. I thought maybe it was because uh, you, you think of us as a pushover audience. You could work out the kinks in your act and stuff. Uh, right. We like to get really mellow before <laughs> we start a tour. Um, no, that's not, that's not it. You know, I mean, I have to say, I don't really fully, I don't feel like I really understand Santa Cruz as a city. You know, I've, there are times when I think, oh, it's kind of like a California take on a college town. Yeah. But, um, Somehow it seems like there's uh, there's a, sort of another dimension to it that is is as a as a New Yorker it's just outside of my experience. And it would take longer than we have in this interview to to really explain <laughs> it to you. Well, John, I wanted to go back to the last interview uh, you and I did, which which you've forgotten, but um, I'll remind you of a key moment because I wanted to. Well, I always say the same things. Um, you might have said this to many people then, um, but I was kind of curious when you said it at the time. We didn't really have uh, the leisure to pursue this, but I'd like to this time around. So here's here's what you said. We've always written more serious songs than, than, any, than any critique would ever indicate. You know, I think people in our audience sort of were aware that, that we were sort of ambitious about the scope of what we were doing. Did you catch that, John? I was just sort of just grousing that, like, critic, rock critics didn't take us more seriously. Oh, I, I didn't take it as grousing. I took it as a sign that, you know, some people think, think of you as kind of silly and maybe a bit of a novelty act, even to this day. And you well, were saying... I mean, you know, I, I guess... What's interesting is that in some ways the culture has shifted so much and embraces um, humor in, in things in a way. I almost feel like having the discussion is making an argument that's almost past. Um, you know, we came up in the moment where Rolling Stone magazine and Rod Stewart and all the rock acts of the 70s were really working overtime to hold on to their market share, and there was very little room for new bands, whether it was like Husker Du or They Might Be Giants or The Replacements or 10,000 Maniacs or whoever, 
there was a general like um, no young people need apply sign <laughs> slapped across the the rock you know employment office and you know at the core of it I feel like rock music is essentially a very it's a very adolescent enterprise and like a lot of adolescents people in the rock business are very insecure about the actual artistic merit of what they're doing and they feel like if they do something lighthearted or expose that they have a, you know sort of a, a humorous sensibility that on some larger level the quality of what they're doing will never be understood and in some ways you know we recoil from being pigeonholed but because we feel like we're we're trying to incorporate sort of lasso in a few different ideas and move the way songs are put together forward in our own you know, personal kind of humble way and in that way as i was saying in the previous interview like we are we are artistically ambitious but you know dr seuss is artistically ambitious like good thing you know good things have a sense of humor mm-hmm. and good things have a sense of, of proportion and and lightness to them uh, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, if, if, if just being, you know, pompous was, or, or faux profound was all it took to, to make people respect you, pe- you know, people would be listening to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Right, right, right. Well, that was the milieu yeah, uh, yeah, that you're exactly. talking about. Well, I mean, and, and it actually, you know, some, some people really got a free pass because of just their, their epicness. Right, 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 right. But, uh, you know, I, did, I, I have to say, just like on a personal level, as a musician, I know ton- oodles of musicians. You know, not just in They Might Be Giants, but also just my social circle includes a lot of musicians. And one thing you notice about musicians is that even the most deadly serious musicians on stage often have a very wicked sense of humor off stage. And as a culture, I, I, always, I always feel like musicians have a very difficult time figuring out how to set that into what they're doing. You know, it's hard to find the right balance. And I think it's because humor in music is, is kind of nitroglycerin a little bit. You undermine something, and you might lose something that is more important to hold on to, um, you know, if you, if you really want to reach people on a different kind of emotional level. Well, when you guys started, um, there was a reaction. Uh, it wasn't just you to Rock's self-seriousness, and there were a number of satirical... Uh, musical forms coming out at the time, real arch in their performance style. But I wouldn't say that we felt like we were working in opposition to what was going on. I think it was, I mean, I think that's why, you know, alternative is actually kind of a a very pleasant word because it's a positive thing. Um, It's not, it's not like uh, we're, we're uh, here to, you know, take down somebody else or that or that what we're doing is even necessarily in response to something else i don't i don't know if that's a really a, a a way you can create something is like i don't i don't think like uh i don't think fugazi was mad at middle of the road rock i think fugazi just liked to make noise well you know given what you said about rock and its adolescent roots and getting too serious because uh, a lot of adolescents are at a stage of life when they want to be taken seriously, but don't know whether they've really earned it yet. Oh yeah, and yeah, haven't. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. And 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 also, you know, I, I mean, I have to tell you, like, this is just this, an odd anecdote. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt your question, but um, working at, you know, when we were when we were at Electra for you know that decade in the '90s, um, 
we would often be, you know, coming into the publicity office and looking at other people's press releases. And what's funny is it doesn't matter what kind of band it is. Like, half the time, press releases are just, like, these strange declarations of, like, <laughs> we want to be taken seriously. Yes. You are like, Motley Crue's new album. Like, we want to be taken seriously. Metallica's new album. We want to be taken seriously. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd thing for how, how important it is for people to be taken seriously. Well, but, you know, comedians want to be taken. You know, comedians <laughs> want you to laugh at the exact right place, but not at anything else. If comedians want to be taken seriously. They do, and it shows when someone tries to mess with their act. Um, right, they, exactly. they get really pissed, really, really pissed. You want to see someone angry, look at a comedian in the middle of a joke who's been interrupted by someone uh, making a remark or even cheering them on at the yeah, wrong time. Well, if you want to talk to somebody angry, talk to a comedian. <laughs> But uh, but there's no anger in your music that I can pick up. Oh, I don't know. I mean, our you know we just did a video uh, for this song "When Will You Die," which is like this crazy, relentless rant. But we couch our rage in a thick veneer of goodwill. Well, John, let's um, you just name check the song. Let's play a little bit of it. Okay. I'm so tired of your lies And the evil things you're doing behind my back Are the crimes that you have never committed I doubt it sometimes I wonder when will you die You're insane, you are bad You wreck everything you touch And you're a sociopath There's one thing that everyone's wondering When will you die? School children stay at home So just a taste there of uh, When Will You Die from um, really your latest album, right? Yeah. Uh, Join Us, yes. which has a, uh, a picture of a hearse with monster truck wheels yes. on, on, the, on the cover, which makes me think, yeah, real eager for someone to die there. <laughs> well, it was kind of, you know, it's always a, an undercurrent. I mean, I think, I think uh, sometimes it's the, it's the main topic, and sometimes it's just the um, when we run out of ideas, we... We make everything explode. Well, I said your your songs never sound angry. Oh yeah, those lyrics delivered in a different way. Yeah, uh, it could be a could very sound, different kind of vibe. Could could sound pretty pitiless, but coming um, from you guys, I always feel sweet to me. Well, that's interesting. You know, it, it sort of gets back to um, just the idea of what a band is, and and I think we're trying to to sort of spark people's imaginations in a way that is unexpected, you know. We, I think trying to do something that's actually surprising is, is that's, that's important to us. It's inevitable that anybody doing any creative work is going to 
feel understood on a certain level and misunderstood on another level. But I think what, what gives us a lot of job satisfaction is that people seem to engage with what we're doing in such a direct way. And that's actually always been kind of our lucky break. Um, we've had a, a long run and, uh, and gotten a lot of really positive reactions from people. And that's, that's unusual. I mean, uh, there are a lot of very talented musicians in the world and a lot of very important artists in the world who never you know, find an audience for what they're doing. And uh, it's, it makes it a lot easier to get through the world when people applaud at the end. Yeah, and, and you know, if, for instance, um, I had been a record executive or a music prognosticator sometime in the late 80s, and someone had come to me with this example. He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. People should get beat up for stating their beliefs. He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. Cause he knows there's no such thing He asks a girl If they can both sit in a chair But he doesn't get nervous She's not really there He wants a shoehorn The kind with teeth Cause he knows there's no such thing Tour the world In a heavy metal band But they run out of gas The plane can never land He wants a shoehorn The kind with teeth People should get beat up for stating their beliefs. He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. Cause he knows there's no such thing. What's the sense in ever thinking about the tomb when you're much too busy returning to the womb? He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. People should get beat up for stating their beliefs. He wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. Cause he knows there's no such thing. Okay, I would not have said, boy, they're going to be big. They're going to be big. 30 years from now, we're going to be talking about those guys. <laughs> well, you know, once again, you've got, the, uh, you've got the random violence thrown in on top of the uh, good vibes of the music. Um, well, the truth of the matter is, uh, we had to sell a lot of records on our own before any record, you know, big-time record people came around. So we were already kind of cracking the code with audiences. There's sort of the official way of doing things in the music business, and, and then, you know, there's kind of a, a lot, you know, people doing stuff in a kind of an uncharted way, and uh, we just found a, a different kind of path. Did you guys ever feel, though, I mean, coming from an era in which, again, rock had now ascended to the point of having its superstars, its operas, you know, uh, arena concerts and things like that. Ever feel weird just coming out with really silly stuff like that, that song I just played, Shoehorn with Teeth? Um, I feel like we always, the material we put together always felt really right to us. I think the bigger challenges were not um, structural, like, you know, what record company we were working with, but actually trying to figure out how to make a show go from like a club setting to a theater setting that was just as effective for us, trying to figure out how to sort of export this kind of fragile and strange little club act and turn it into something that would be interesting on a on a theater scale was a big that was that was actually like a big transitional moment for us and um, and I and you know I don't even know how successful we were at first when we did it I think you know we were we wanted to we wanted to do a good job but it, there definitely was a learning curve to it. Um, that that uh, song I just played, Shoehorn with Teeth, by the way, is from uh, Lincoln, your second album. From yes. Something like 1988. You guys are reprising some of that material these days, aren't you? Yeah. 
we um, we do a long show. Uh, you know, our we play an hour and a half or hour forty five, sometimes even even more. Um, so the idea of sort of spotlighting an album within a show, it, it isn't such a big obstruction for us that we feel like we can't um, do other things. It's, it's, it sounds really monolithic, but actually it often feels like more of a celebration of the, the, the weirder stuff that we do. Uh, you know, here we are, deep inside side two of our album. And that's fun. You know, it's fun for us because it's just a di- really different kind of repertoire than just playing the better-known stuff. So you're doing um, a show or so on this current tour that is doing yeah, all of Lincoln? Yeah, Santa Cruz will actually probably be uh, running a bunch of stuff from Lincoln just to have it under our belts uh, for uh, the, the show we're doing in in Los Angeles the next day. You're going to do Shoehorn with Teeth? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, do you have any others off of that album that are particular favorites of yours? You know, I, I, I really enjoy uh, uh, Snowball in Hell. You know that's that's speaking of uh, deep inside of a uh, side two. Yeah. Um, in the uh, in the live show, we actually do Snowball and Hell with puppets. We started doing this puppet show with the ki- with kids doing kids shows, but the response from adults was so much <laughs> more direct. <laughs> I mean, the kids like the puppets, but the, but the audience, the the adults, love the puppets. <laughs> Let's have a little taste of Snowball and Hell. to find a salesman drinking coffee this late in the morning. How long you been here, Joe? Oh, I don't know. I guess 30, 45 minutes, maybe. Why do you ask? You must be making a lot of sales, piling up good income. Oh, uh, I'm doing all right. I could do better, but... Oh, I get it, Paul. Back on that old time is money kick, right? I'm not back on it, Joe. Still on it. Avalanche Roadblock I was a snowball in hell Avalanche Roadblock A jailer trapped in his cell Money I owe Money I yeah. Money I owe Money I yeah. Avalanche Snowball in hell. 
I realize I'm, I, my vocal, I'm kind of mildly uh, imitating Phil Oaks on that recording, that kind of slightly Midwestern, like, oh. Was he an influence? Uh, I love Phil Oaks. I listened to a lot of Phil Oaks as a kid. I, I, you know, I grew up sort of in the shadow of the Cambridge, Massachusetts folk scene, which is not as uh, celebrated as, um, you know, the New York, as the Greenwich Village folk world. But, uh, you know, it was basically where Joan Baez came out of. You know, there was the Jim Queskin Jug Band, which Maria Muldar was the singer in. And this guy, Eric von Schmidt, was like a very talented singer, you know, performer, kind of a guy, you know, kind of collected old songs. It was it was a neat place to, you know, hear music. You know, it was, it was a very specific place and time. But my my dad had a firm in, an architectural firm in Harvard Square in Cambridge. And uh, just downstairs from his office was a, a, like a very popular folk spot. And uh, Joan Baez was just starting at that point and was kind of a phenomenon. And, uh, you know, Bob Dylan was coming around. So it was like, it was a very heady moment. And you saw those guys as a kid? I saw Joan Baez. I saw, wow. I saw Maria Muldar. Mm-hmm. The Jim Queskin Jug Band did a photo shoot in the woods behind our house uh, when I was a little kid. And I remember seeing the photographer. It's actually the cover of their greatest hits album. It's this picture of, like, Maria Muldar in a paper dress. You grew up in, in the town of Lincoln, after which that album was named. Yeah. Um, which is outside of Boston. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just in the western <clears throat> You told me that you and um, John Linnell used to hang out in the uh, public library after school. Yeah, well, there weren't that many places uh, that were heated to, to <laughs> hang out in. I don't think it was like it, it, wasn't, an ex, it wasn't an expression of our you know, interest in, in the books? word. Oh, no? You weren't bookish lads? Didn't you hang out in your like library? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was bookish. I mean, I love oh, books. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's it, there's so many there's so <laughs> few public spaces to to be when you're a kid that like just to to just be not be home, you know. And uh, the library was uh, was one of them. And uh, Lincoln has a pretty cool looking library. It's beautiful. Yeah. Someone has put a picture of it on the Wikipedia page for for Lincoln, Massachusetts. Oh, funny. Um, Snowball in Hell, um, you guys sort of shared the writing credits on all your pieces, uh-huh. uh, but uh, I assume some of them come more from you and some more from oh, John Linnell. Yeah, I mean, we, we actually just, um, you know, we just, we just put the songs under the banner of They Might Be Giants, and I think early on it was a, it was a way to uh, kind of help from having the, the idea of the band get kind of pulled apart into... You know, he's the guy who does this, and he's the guy who does that. I mean, beyond the fact that we do um, contribute, you know, little things to each other's um, compositions, and some, and also often collaborate in a really full-blown way on the actual song creation. Um, it just seemed like a way to keep the biography part of it at bay. The biography part at bay, that's an interesting thing to say. You know, I guess you, know, you can gather from the way I talk about what we're doing that, like, you know, there, there's, there's a healthy contrarian yeah. streak in, in yeah. what we're doing. But, you know, um, that, that idea of, like, holding on to, like, a little bit of, of mystery is something that really gets undone by the sort of the stingification of, of 
a performer, you know, when it, when everything starts getting wrapped up in like, what was he thinking when he wrote this? Right, right, right. It kind of, it kind of robs the song itself of having its own environment. Um, yeah, and I was going through your um, works and thinking, is there anything here that I could, uh, with any confidence, say, oh, that's autobiographical? And, and oh, of course, I well, could take I mean, a lot of guesses, yeah. but, um, but, but none of them absolutely scream autobiography, at least not to me. Yeah. Am I missing I, a, a I good think, example? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of things that are, that are, that are autobiographical, but um, I don't know how important it is that people know that or, or think about it in those terms, I guess. Well, well how about this one, John? Um, this is, again, <laughs> from the most recent album, Join Us. Yes. Here we go. Keep Johnny down from join us. Um, yes. uh, a character named John. So there you go. Um, and he's, you know, he's a small town guy, very resentful. Um. <laughs> it's totally autobiographical. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you know that song is like kind of. A, I mean, a, that's a John Linnell composition, and I think it's is very sort of emblematic of um, the kind of unreliable narrator yeah, idea. Yeah. Reminded me a bit of uh, a Randy Newman character, you know. Yeah, well, I think Randy Newman is, is probably a very, you know, a very direct influence on us, um, you know, especially like the, the kind of good old boys era when, you know, virtually all his songs were first person, but they were almost always um, this unreliable narrator kind of thing where, uh, you know, the, it was a character singing a song. Um, but that one uh, is a John Linnell song. So obviously not not your autobiography in there at all, and and probably not John's either. But no, I think I mean John is. I've I've done enough interviews with John. I can tell you he's got a great pants to say like he he cannot relate to the character described in the song. <laughs> I didn't think so. It doesn't sound like you guys at all. Yeah, and I know I'm I'm really um, 
I'm barking up the wrong tree to even try to get into personal material in your songs because you're going to resist it even if it's there, right? You're not going to let me know. No, I'm, I'm trying to be candid. Okay, so, so, so give me a song that came out of a personal experience. I'm, work, I'm working with you here. All righty. Uh, you're not going to be one of those difficult artists who no, no, evades uh, every me, like, question. Let me just look, I'll look at a list of songs. I can't, yeah. I can't think of it off the top of my head like what would be... You know, here's a, uh, an odd example off the off the Joinus album. There's a very strange song called Cloisonne. I actually put the lyric together as basically like almost like a linear stream of consciousness, like uh, kind of, almost kind of like a rap, um, because it's got it's got elements of like a rap uh, think you know swagger speech in it. Like it's it's like a, kind of like a, I'm such a badass, like quit bugging me, punk kind of <laughs> lyric, and. So I was kind of playing with that that form, um, which is something that you know I find kind of entertaining, and you know it just it's it's almost like a it's like a it's like a rant, um, and there's a lot of internal rhyming in the structure of it. But uh, about uh, two thirds of the way through the song, there's a line that comes up. It mentions flea stacks, and just in a description of of people that are like bugging the protagonist, like you know I'm sick of these flea stacks. I'm sick of these second-story sleeve stacks breathing on my dice, and it's like the whole idea is that you know he's kind of like some kind of I mean, some kind of big player, and there are these creepy people bugging him, and um, the the narrator says like you know what's a sleeve stack? Like he's questioning himself, like he doesn't even know what he's talking about. You know, generationally, I'm exactly like two years too old to know what a sleeve stack is. <laughs> Um, you know, I stopped watching like kids TV in 1975 or 74, or whatever. And I guess Land of the Lost, which is the television show that Sleeve Stacks are from, came on television right like in, right around then. And so, for everybody slightly younger than me, till like now, knows and loves this television show that I actually have no no consciousness of. So your character uh, uses the term and then wonders what. He's yeah, and then what, what it is, and you know, and that that whole idea, that whole con- you know, like sort of internal monologue, actually comes from a discussion. My wife and I had people over, and like all dinner parties at our house, everybody's younger than me because I'm so damn old. And um, <laughs> and the conversation turned to sleeve stacks, and everybody's doing like these very specific rip roaring imitations of the character voices and monster voices from this show, and I'm like. You know, my wife, you know, I, I just had to ask my wife, like, what's a sleeve stack? Which is a very uh, strange to not know. Because, I mean, it's like asking somebody, like, what, who Darth Vader is. You know, it's like, it's, it's something that people are expected to know. No, I think, I think um, the aging process includes for all of us a what's a sleeve stack moment, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's a, humbling. It's a painful moment. Yes. <laughs> Let's play a little bit of that song. One, two, three, four. Mind your business, mind your business, mind you'll never shut Quonset Hut business. Minecraft is exploding, it's like I'm making cloisonne, choking on my dust with my three blind cats. You have a friend in law enforcement, don't go calling law enforcement business. Mind your business.
got too busy explaining. Now it's just rain and pain, pain in the form of a raindrop. Yes, a raindrop made of pain. Tell them the story, raindrop. I don't wanna tell them, mister. Tell them the story, raindrop. I don't wanna tell them. Keep your voice down. Keep your voice down. Keep your window shaking, godforsaken voice down. I'm sick of this beeswax. I'm sick of these second stories. These stacks breathing on my dice. Giving me back rubs. When I'm deep in concentration, you start getting all conversating. Sleep stack. What's a sleep stack? That's your heart attack. Towel rack. Fall back. You got no doctors. All you doctors have gone home. What's a sleep stack? What's a sleep stack? You have a friend in law enforcement. Don't go calling law enforcement. Poisoning. Oh, man. There you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you laugh at your own songs? Uh, no, not really, but I mean, I'm, I'm not against it. Are you familiar with this um, website, songmeanings.net? No, no. Oh, uh, well, you can go there and um, look at any, just about any They Might Be Giants song and find commenters trying to decode them. Uh, right, right. And, and it's really funny and cute because uh, people take the stuff seriously enough to actually exchange these uh, interpretations. Right, right. Well, there, I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, our songs, as lighthearted as they can be, do kind of in- invite that, in just in the sense that there is, like, a lot of, um, you know, compressed thought in it, you know. Um, I think a lot of the stuff is kind of densely written, so it probably invites that kind of um, uh, free-form, you know, interpretive thinking. Well, while we were talking, I looked up um, Cloisonne, okay, and oh, uh-huh. there, there are four comments from various people, um, and, and I'm going to read them to you because I think they're kind of fun. Sure. Um, I feel like the song is sung from the perspective of a criminal of some sort. Don't yes. go calling law enforcement, quote-unquote. Keep yes. your voice down. Slee stacks might be a metaphor for goons or henchmen types. Uh, another, another, guy exactly. ch- another guy chimes in, um, <laughs> utter joyful nonsense, love it. And then a third guy Okay, time for you amateurs to take a seat. First, Sleestacks are the lizard race from the Land of the Lost TV series. Go check that out now. Right. Definitely right. a song about a drug lab exploding. Meth, coke. Cloisonne is an art form that requires a powdered enamel coating to be applied before kiln firing an object. So let's assume a similarity between a pottery oven and the stoves required to manufacture drugs. Now, wow, la- well that's an interesting... <laughs> the uh, idea of... Um, when you're making cloisonne, you have to be super careful with it so you, that you don't blow the glass dust away before it gets put in the kiln. So it's kind of like um, that Woody Allen Coke scene in uh, any hall. You know, basically, it's not that dissimilar. Like, you've got, this, you've got this substance that, like, you have to be really, really gentle with. But it's not like, um, you know, it, it's just it's kind of... It, I didn't think it through. I mean, when I was putting it together, I was just trying to come up with like a cha- an unbroken chain of striking images. But the idea of it being like a gangster or some kind of like me- tough guy, mean guy, is definitely you know that that was in the in the process. But it is a chain of very of ultra vivid images. I mean, you could call it nonsense or jabberwocky or something like that, but. 
it is designed to give you an impression. You know, it, it's, it's put together in a way that's supposed to make you think. Well, well this guy continues uh, with his um, exegesis and says, by the time we get to Sleestacks um, and the other psychedelic imagery, the protagonist has inhaled or otherwise absorbed enough of the drug oh, to no. freak him out. And, and then a final comment from someone saying, as a teacher of literature, I'm always glad to see someone else out there who knows how to interpret the poetry of well-written songs. Um, you mentioned Annie Hall. It's funny because I was just thinking of the moment, was it Annie Hall, where Marshall McLuhan shows up after an argument about interpreting his work? Oh, right, when they're in line for the movie theater. Yeah, so I'm thinking maybe you should jump into this conversation. <laughs> right, uh, please, please. I'm no, John Flansburg. I, I think it's interesting to uh, you know, hear people's interpretations, and, and a lot of times... You know, they, they're. I mean, the first comment is just, I think, very succinctly kind of gets it. So, you know, making it, you're kind of coming at it from a different direction. You know, you know, you just you're, you're trying to uh, you're trying to spark something rather than um, nail something down. So it's 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 kind of a different you know interpretation versus creation are kind of almost like a, they're two horns of the same <laughs> goat. Not the same shoehorn though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I've always been uh, interested in in the um, the contrast between your lyrics and your and your tunes. Um, the tunes appropriate. I use a fancy word. All kinds of conventions or tropes from from rock, right, and other genres. At, at the core of what we're doing, we're like you know we feel like we're a rock band, you know, um, but we do enjoy you know sometimes just just you know to goof off. We do kind of pastichey stuff. I think that really muddies the waters in terms of what our intentions are. I mean, you know, so I think like Simon and Garfunkel, when you start as a duo and you don't have a set rhythm section, you, you might be working on a sound overall. You might have kind of like an idea of what like you're going for you, and certainly have like a developed aesthetic about what you're doing. But if you listen to Simon Garfunkel records, um, which I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of those productions, the thing that's wonderful about them is that they're completely liberated from set. There's no set lineup. It's not like, mm -hmm, right. well, what is the you know what's sure. the sax player going to play on this song? Mm -hmm. There's no sax part yet. Let's figure out what the saxophone's going to do. You know, it's like if there's no call for a saxophone on a given song, like there will be no saxophones. But if the song would be complemented by a saxophone, then that's what they do. And that's a, you know that that I think that might be kind of a recessive in the world that we live in, which, you know, in the rock music world in which we're in, the Beatles loom so large, but um, pop music, just, you know, those, those confections of arrangements that are just put together to be three minutes of glorious sound in whatever direction they're going in, that, you know, they, they would say, like, let's just have this be electronic instruments, or let's just have this be you know, a string quartet or whatever, you know, whatever that would be, that making that big decision about how to arrange a song, uh, that's an idea that we want to kind of take on. I feel, I feel like I'm sounding incredibly <laughs> pretentious here, but, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of inside. It's the, totally know, our, my fault. You've done a good job of kind of getting inside our cave a little bit. Uh, well, it's, it's, it, I know, it's, it's my fault if I'm making you sound uh, pontifical. Cause... No, no, it's, 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 listen, I, you know, I'm probably going to be like talking to some morning show guy in 10 minutes about, and he's going to be like talking about strippers or something. So. <laughs> and this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly, and my guest today is John Flansburg of the band They Might Be Giants. We're talking about their 30-year history 
and their unique musical aesthetic. Also, their upcoming nationwide tour, which is getting started right here in Santa Cruz this coming Friday at the Rio Theater. To find out more, you can go to the Rio website, riotheater.com, and theater is spelled with an R-E at the end, not an E-R. We'll get back to the interview with John Flansberg in just a moment, but first, more music from They Might Be Giants. This is Pine Box from their most recent album, Join Us. They tried the handcuffs, but they won't lock Electrical courses, but they won't shock You pulled the fire alarm, you tried punching a cop You're just too tired Now let's return to today's conversation with John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. Well, well, I've always been interested, starting to say that, interested in the contrast between the sound of the piece and the lyrics, which sometimes seem, you know, disconnected in a very interesting way. I mean, the lyrics could be about something sad, and yet they're just the most danceable, bouncy, exciting kind of tune. You know, ultimately, we've come to realize that that might be almost the preset that we that works. Um, I think if we tried doing dirgy music with really happy lyrics, it might not that <laughs> it might not work. Come across. Although, I mean, it's an interesting idea. I mean, we should. We sh- I think we should probably invest more time in that approach. But um, there is something. I mean, I mean, for lack of a, a better word, I, I mean, there is something kind of postmodern about what we're doing. I mean, we're. We're not really hung up on authenticity, and we're not really hung up on, you know, it's not important to us that people, like, think we're cool or, you know, and, and all that stuff is, is, it's very liberating. I mean, you can, you know, you can do stuff that has a more kind of radical feel, you know, that it kind of lands in a more uh, experimental place and doesn't run the risk of just, like, bugging people. I mean, you haven't... It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you haven't changed in that regard in the, you know, what, more or less 30-some years you've been together, that you continue to have this very playful attitude toward the music. Yeah, well, you know, one of the advantages that we had was that when we started, we weren't old, but we were pretty 
formed adults. I mean, we were out of college and had been in other bands, and we were living in New York City, which is very different than living in, like, a, you know, a, a college town or some other environment, you know. I mean, we were very far away from the the idea of, of just, like, being in a band to get through the world socially, you know. Like, you know, you always hear interviews from people like, I got into music because I want to meet girls. Like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we, 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 you know, our, our girlfriends were already sick of our music by the time we started this band. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I never got the impression from you guys that, that sort of acquiring star power was, was ever uh, <laughs> your motive. Uh, well, I mean, so different I'll tell from... you, I mean, just uh, in, all, in all candor, kind of get to, uh, just circling back to what I was saying before, like, I mean, I, we've done thousands of shows, and I really don't remember a lot of them, especially the ones that went well. But I do remember <laughs> our first couple of shows very well, and it was really exciting to have people respond the way they did to our, they did to our music and like the first couple of years of the band you know we we were really celebrated by a lot of people in the east village scene in new york city a lot of strangers and when you're in a band that's as like sort of cloistered and you know off in the left hand corner of what of the world like they might be giants has been having that level of acceptance like you know was very very heartening i mean there were club owners in these performance art clubs who really actually you know they were instrumental in helping us get through the world like they hired us all the time like we got to do shows on a on a weekly basis for a bunch of years um for pretty good money and we got a ton of exposure and uh and we got to kind of work out what we were doing so when we finally started making albums and and uh you know kind of went into like more of a national scene we had a lot of uh flight hours under our belts you know we were we were pretty fully formed i we i feel like uh we sort of flourished in obscurity for a, a bunch of years there and that was really good for us as a band I think we were very lucky to have um, those years in the East Village, because a lot of times, you know, bands sort of start in one place and want to change into something else, and then they have this kind of strange ambivalent relationship to their earlier stuff. You know, they kind of feel like they're they can't get they can't get past whatever, you know. And uh, we we've never really had that problem. I, I think. We've had a kind of we've had some lucky breaks that way. You guys have bypassed a lot of the the problems that go with um, long careers in rock and roll. It seems to me. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, top, top shelf liquor, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, your music and your style does not seem um, likely to to have drawn sort of such a devoted following, and yet you have one. I want to play a little clip from the the documentary that was made about you called Gigantic. Oh sure. You've watched it, right? Uh, yeah, I had to theater with like. 700 people the first time for the first time it was uh it was shown and there you very go. scary there you go 700 people well there's this scene here of you guys doing um you're, you're signing cds uh at a mall somewhere okay and your fans are there so here's this uh clip from a fan i love them so much i have no idea oh my god have you met them before like very briefly, but I've never like talked to them. I've just like shook, shook their hands. <laughs> oh my god, it's like the greatest day ever. 
Yes, that's the, a, the crying girl. She was crying because you had just signed her CD, and she was so overwhelmed by the moment, she said it was the greatest thing ever. How? I mean, you guys didn't really seek out that kind of power over people, right? And yet, here well, I mean, it I, happened. I don't know if anybody does. I, you know, even <laughs> I think some people have a kind of megalomaniac uh, attraction <laughs> well, to you know, to being I able mean, to move the masses. I guess. I guess yeah. It, it would be a, yeah. I mean, thank. I, I feel like it's a recessive trait, even among the most uh, <laughs> boorish of us. But it, but it happened to you anyway, apparently. I mean, there are some diehard fans. Well, you know, the, you know I remember when they were shooting that day, because we sort of went out there to do the signing, and the, the, the part that didn't end up in the film was kind of the male analog of it, which is there was this guy who was like your classic Long Island heavy metal guy. He was like, I like Dio. <laughs> I like, you know, like he's like totally like the guy who was like, you know, bullying us in high school, and he was this the biggest they might be Johnson fan. And he actually was waiting out in the parking lot when we arrived, and sort of buttonholed us there. And we were like, "You've got to, you know, we really want, <laughs> want you to be on film because you're such an unlikely fan." You know, um, so he was like probably wearing like a Pantera T-shirt, <laughs> and uh, he was just like, "Don't let it stop, man. Just like you guys, that's excellent." So, so yeah, what, why? You know, why? We're, you know, we're Explain it to me, John. Why? Why? The world. why? I mean, you guys are these. Um, I would imagine your fan base, you know, would be a fairly sophisticated lot who would be people who savor irony and uh, consider themselves maybe too cool for just straight up, you know, pop entertainment. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've said this before, but I've, you know, I have done shows where I've seen people in the crowd, like wearing a Pearl Jam t-shirt, clearly wearing it ironically, and in, and, <laughs> you know, in the same, in the same week of shows, seeing people wearing Pearl Jam t-shirts, not ironically. I, I think we have a very wide audience. I think they're very self-selected. They, you know, what they like about us. Is you know it's a pretty wide range of things, and I'm, I don't want to short circuit like people's joy in in celebrating what we're doing by saying like our music is only good for this. Right. You know, I mean, right. I feel like it's a very stingy. You know, if you just like it because it makes you smile, like that, you know, that's not that's not wrong. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not. I don't feel like we want to demand that people like you know sit down and analyze our lyrics <laughs> and sit down and you know, figure out the harmonic structure of our songs. Like, you know, it's just like whatever. Whatever you like, and and uh, that has happened to like a pretty large extent. You know, like part of it is a lot of, because a lot of our music is on television. You get a much wider bunch of people. I mean, being on the radio, being on television, getting to do festivals. You know, we've been very lucky. We get to do rock festivals, and we might, you know, we're, we won't be at the top of the bill, but we're playing for the same people that you know are going to be seeing the, the headliner two hours later. Right, right. I so mean, it's like you know, we kind of get, you know, we we have we have like a we have unique access to like kind of a mainstream audience, and I feel like we're you know we're very lucky for that. Well, you guys may you know sneak in some uh, very sly lyrics, some very nerdy lyrics, uh, like in the song I'm about to play. But as in the song I'm about to play, you also just plain rock when you want to. Um, and, you like the rock? Yeah, yeah. So I think that that maybe that uh, accounts for some of the. The incredibly broad appeal. Um, this one I wanted to play because we're in a political season right now. In fact, um, I'm reading that Newt Gingrich is surging again. Yes. 
And uh, I think that if the name hadn't already been taken, he might be called the Napoleon of the Stump. <laughs> so I'm going to play this song right now. In 1844, the Democrats were split. The three nominees for the presidential candidate were Martin Van Buren, a former president and an abolitionist, James Buchanan, a moderate, Louis Cass, a general and expansionist. So that was James K. Polk, about uh, mostly forgotten president, but you guys revived him in this really danceable tune from your album Factory Showroom, and I just thought I'd play that since this is, once again, an election year. Yeah, I mean, it's perfectly honest, he gets off pretty easy in the song. <laughs> um, if, if we were more uh, uh, strident about the lyric, I think uh, we could have, we could have uh, painted him with a, a much darker uh, brush. Yeah. It sticks to the facts that we let the audience decide whether or not he was a creepy imperialist. I think the majority just say James K. Polk rocks. Yes, exactly. And leave it at that. Well, I know you're, you have to get on with your life and prepare for this tour and so on, so I thought we'd finish up by uh, just letting you pick the, the very last tune. Um, if you 
were going to play a song by request, I would request the song How Can I Sing Like a Girl, which actually we do a very quiet version of in the show. But uh, the production of the song How Can I Sing Like a Girl is, uh, is something I'm really, uh, on the recording, is something I'm actually very proud of because it's really, uh, it's kind of epic. Great. Well, we're going to play the, um, the recorded version and uh, look forward to seeing the live version. Fantastic. Hey, thank you so much for your time. are calling to sing along but my window's painted shut and all that year of chorus taught me is out of style and long This has been the 7th Avenue Project. Thanks a bunch to Flans. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. You can check us out on our website at 7thAvenueProject.com. 